If you're lucky, you've been able to see a commercial where in the middle of suburbia, a landscape that could look like just about any place in a modern American suburb, there's a man dressed in drab 18th century or 19th century clothes, and he's on a wagon with gigantic spoke wheels and a steer of some sort is pulling him, and he's got a plow, and he's plowing his front yard in this suburban neighborhood. His son walks out to him and says, Father, they don't talk like the rest of the people in the suburbs, why can't we have direct TV like the McGregors do? His father answers him with confidence and certainty, Well, we're settlers, son. We settle for things like having cable instead of direct TV. Just then, his neighbor pulls up in his new modern car, dressed in his, you know, dockers and his khaki, I mean, his khaki pants and his white shirt, probably. <laughs> I can't remember what he's wearing. But he looks over and he says, Hey, Jebediah, how's it going? Jebediah answers, Just working the land, hoping for a fertile spring. The neighbor looks at him bewildered and says, All right, and then he walks off to the house. The conversation ensues with the son saying, So we have to live with lower customer satisfaction? And Jebediah answers, I'm afraid so, son. Now go churn us some butter and make your own clothes, boy. And the boy, as he wanders off, says, Yes, sir. And then the announcer comes in with his great announcer voice and says, Don't be a settler. Call direct TV. And there, in the midst of their drab clothing and their homemade haircuts and playing as their children are with faceless dolls growing crops in their front suburban yard, we see what we could call in our common parlance, settle shaming. Every criticism now is a shaming of some sort, so settlers are being shamed in this commercial. And first of all, I get it. It's funny. It's hilarious. That's why I'm telling you, because I'm about to tell you hard stuff, and I've got to soften you up some way. <laughs> but it is interesting, because it does belie a kind of thinking that seeps into our brains. I've seen Saturday Night Live do skits about this. I've seen and heard lots of people in business literature, in Christian literature, and everywhere around us, insinuating somehow or another that the worst possible thing you could do is to settle in your life. Now, there are certain instances where settling can be bad, but if settling means somehow being content, if settling means somehow I have adopted a way of thinking that means I don't have to construct and configure my life just like every other life, that we have been let in on divine mysteries and secrets that we are to steward and we're to take in and breathe into ourselves so that they become part of us, then we'll find ourselves settling and not responding to the subtle shaming. The insinuation is if you're not ambitious enough to go after the next best thing, to get something good, to get something better, then you are somehow defective in your person. 
something like that could be said, I think, in this first chapter and the second chapter of Micah that we're going to be looking at select verses from. Where Micah, as you'll remember, has this Hebrew name given to him by his parents that is a shortened form of the expression, who is like Yahweh? Who is like Yah? Who is like our God? His name says it, and the end of this book says it. We have a God who has swept us up into this story whereby he is renovating the world, making sad things come untrue, where he is immunizing us from our God allergies so that we can be the people who have a vocation of depicting to the world how peerless he is, how matchless he is. That was Israel's vocation. That's our vocation. Who is like our God? We were to depict this with lips and lives. And yet the people of Israel, like we are constantly, we're trying to limit their liabilities. They looked around at the other nations and they were constantly, like we, saying we don't want to be too different. We might be missing out. What if they're right and we're wrong? Maybe... Maybe the practices that they, the nations, have, maybe, maybe making these offerings to Baal would be a good idea to make sure we have a good wheat crop this year. I don't have anything set back for a rainy day. It can't hurt to hedge our bets. Maybe we should make an alliance with other nations just in case we get attacked by some strong nation with military strength unrivaled In our little puny nation, there are all these temptations to say we've got to do what everybody else is doing. We've got to pursue what everybody else is pursuing. And in the process, what always always winds up happening is that God gets rooted out of the picture and almost, no, always, he is offended by this. God doesn't like to be rooted out of the picture because he is the one for whom we were made. He's demonstrated his commitment to the well-being of his servant whom he called his treasured possession. A kingdom of priests to the whole world. That's what his people were to be. And yet they have now established high places where they're worshiping other gods at these shrines. Participating in cultic prostitution. Participating in making offerings to other gods besides the one living God. And so Micah has the unenviable task, as prophets often do, of announcing the principle that always works out in the Bible that judgment begins with the people of God. Peter says this as well. The people who ought to know better, to whom much is given, much is expected. You don't give a calculus test to somebody who's never had algebra. And the people of God are expected to know their algebra, their divine algebra, and their trigonometry, and their geometry, and their pre-calculus of the Spirit. They are the ones who are tested and examined because they are the ones who have been entrusted with the very words of God, the very ways of God. He's taught them. He's revealed himself to them like no other nation. And so when they follow their own noses, It's especially, it's especially offensive 
Because it feels an awful lot like them saying, you know, sure, God's our husband, but he won't really care if we have a few mistresses on the side. He's generous, isn't he? Slow to anger, bounding in compassion, wants everybody to be happy. Lots of Christians have used that line for lots of things. And Micah says, look, God's summoning everybody from his holy palace. And he comes forth like a divine warrior. He's in a law court setting and he's lodging an accusation against everybody, all peoples, all of you. Listen, all earth and all who are in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the high places of the earth. He melts the mountains like wax. All these things that seem unbreakable and sturdy. We live on a mountain. We don't expect it to fall anytime soon. As the sovereign Lord comes down, they're like a Dixie cup beneath the foot of a rambunctious little boy. He smashes the mountains like a boy smashes a Dixie cup. That's how powerful and mighty and completely different than we are our God is. And we say, why? Why is the Lord breaking out like a warrior? Why is he suddenly not warring against his enemies, but against his own people who are living as his enemies? And here's why. Because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the house of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? The two capital cities. Samaria is the capital city of the northern tribes of Israel. When the kingdom split, these northern tribes, they had their own capital, Samaria, where they did worship. They had high places to other gods. Jerusalem was the capital of the southern tribes of Judah. And he says both of these places are the center of your adultery. Both of these places are the, are the petri dish where you cultivate your bacterial infection of heart. Your rebellion against God. And I'm coming with a penicillin to destroy it. I'm coming with might. I'm coming, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place of planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations, these ornate cut rocks. Without equal in the ancient Near East, they're going to be thrown down and shattered And listen to this, all her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts burned with fire. I will destroy her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. All her idols will be broken to pieces. One of the things you see as we're walking through this, as we think about the subtle shaming that infects the air that we breathe, that says you need to aspire to a different life than the one you've got. You need to aspire to something better because God can't be trusted. God may be holding out on you. You need to hedge your bets. You need to make sure to throw yourself full in to lots of different ways to make sure you're getting life from other places than God. And you see God's response. All her idols will be broken to pieces. God has this habit because he takes it very personally. He has this habit of shattering anything that tends to smother the life of God in his people. God has a habit 
of shattering anything that tends to smother the life of God from his people. He recognizes in some ways that we are like people who have spiritual sleep apnea. You know what happens with sleep apnea? When you're sleeping, you stop breathing. Now, I ain't no rocket scientist nor a brain surgeon. But I do imagine that not breathing is not good. I've read this. When you cannot breathe, you cannot live. When you do not breathe, you do not oxygenate your blood cells. Your bloodstream is deprived of what it needs. Your brain is deprived of what it needs. That's why apnea is so dangerous and worse. You stop breathing lots of times a night and you don't even know it. You're not getting oxygenated. You're causing all this harm to yourself and you have no idea. You start to feel sluggish maybe. Headachey maybe. You show symptoms maybe. God recognizes that with our idolatry, with the people of God, when they start to, when they start to take created things, good things that God has handed to them, and they make them ultimate things. They make them the main thing in their life which is what idolatry is. That's how Keller explains it. That little Jimmy Keller, the, the, the Catholic, younger, unknown brother of Tim Keller. No, it's really Tim Keller. He says that idolatry is when we take, ultimate, we take good things and make them into ultimate things. That's more our temptation for idolatry. It creates a kind of apnea where, where the oxygen of God's ways in God's life that we ought to be breathing in, that we ought to be taking into ourselves, we say, reveal yourself to us, God. Give us an undivided heart that we may fear your name. Lead us for the sake of your name so we may know your ways. Show yourself to us. These ways that we're supposed to be taking into ourselves and imaging, suddenly what happens is we get cramped. God's cut off. We are not breathing in anymore. We start breathing in other air. and we get, we get choked and we don't know it. And if God loves us, he's going to destroy the things that that smother the life of God in us. Because he wants you to radiate with God. You're made to image God. He wants God's life to pulse out of you. He wants his warmth to radiate from you. He wants his tenderness to come out of your pores. But if you have convinced yourself that you must take matters into your own hands, that God can't be trusted... that there must be better ways than the ways that God has laid out for you, then increasingly the life of God is going to be smothered. And if he loves you, he's going to shatter those things that smother it. This judgment that Micah talks about already happened, you know. It's important to realize that a lot of prophecy has already happened. Micah was telling these, these tribes that they should understand what happened in the mid-8th century was this dude, this fierce ruling king, Sennacherib, which is a name that I've not heard anybody name their kid recently, but you could. It would be weird. Call him Ribby or something. (laughs) Sennacherib was leading this powerful, innovative, militarily brawny Assyrian army who destroyed Samaria. It happened. And he even made his way up in 701 B.C. to the gates of Jerusalem. And you know the story about Hezekiah who was told he was going to die and that 
Jerusalem was going to be sacked. And he cried and he wept and he repented before the Lord. And the Lord said, okay then, I'll give you some more years. They won't be sacked just yet, but one day they will. And he's like, good. All safe in my lifetime. That's all I care about. And God said, that is nice, Hezekiah. He didn't say that is nice, Hezekiah. But later, of course, the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem and took God's people into captivity, into exile from the land. The Apostle Paul takes this line of thought. Because you see, we are people. We are people who believe in Jesus Christ and believe that Jesus has been broken to pieces for us. That God says, I'm going to smash these idols to pieces. You have turned your back on me. You are going to face judgment as covenant breakers. But we know that our Savior has become treated as a covenant breaker in our place. He has been smashed instead of us. But one of the things that we must realize is though if we be in Christ, we look forward to a day when Christ is going to, when we get examined, Christ will take away all the scrutiny of God that was against us. As we throw ourselves on his mercy, we have to realize that as we're married to God, we have to adopt his concerns. That's what walking with God is, humbly, as we talked about last week. That's what this whole series is about, walking humbly with God, breathing in his concerns, adopting his way of life in response to him. And the Apostle Paul then would say, here's here's how you can understand some of the things that go wrong in your life. He says to the Corinthians, I don't want you to be uninformed about the hardships that we endured. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. We were utterly, unbearably crushed. We were broken to pieces. And he said, but these things happen that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That's a nice paradigm to realize the stuff that God brought judgment on people for in the Old Testament that he has now judged Christ for on our behalf, he still cares about. And we're the people who adopt those concerns. That's why the New Testament continues to say, flee from idolatry. Put to death all the stuff that makes you want to be like everybody else. Greed, which is idolatry, sexual immorality, anger, your lusts, put them to death. He still cares about this stuff because he still cares about who you become and what you depict to the world. He's restoring the image of God. It's worth asking ourselves, it's worth asking ourselves what are we experiencing as broken to pieces in us right now? And how might that be an invitation for our response back to God to say, oh no, you're right. I have given my heart to another. I have looked expectantly for for my job to do something for me, for my spouse to do something in me, for my children's success to accomplish something for my life, for the applause of others to generate something in me that would make me something, that would restore something in me, that would make me somebody. Maybe I'm making a good thing that's supposed to be the cause of me giving gratitude to God. 
Maybe I'm making it the main thing of my life that's making me forget God. And he's put me in a spot now where I am learning again to depend on him who raises the dead, even though I'm utterly, unbearably crushed. Micah keeps going, talking about the weeping and the mourning that he's going to have because he knows these things have happened. He's saying this prediction of, pro- of judgment because he knows it's happening. He's been in the throne room of God. He's seen a vision. He's reverberating with God's intent. And so he doesn't have the option of sitting on this information. He has to tell it, and he works his way through all these towns in Israel where destruction is going to happen, these plays on words. And then he gets to chapter 2 and says, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it is in their power to do so. They covet fields. Listen to this. They covet fields. Did you hear this? They covet fields. Did I just say that they coveted fields? And they seize them because it is in their power to do so. They covet fields and seize them in houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. God's giving some specific reasons why judgment's coming, how a covenant has been broken, how they have adulterated their faith with him. And as always, it often comes down to economic things. Every time the kingship of God comes into a place or into people's lives, it always starts to touch on how people are treated and how we practice economics. And though you yourself and though most of Israel would not have been guilty specifically for plotting evil on their beds and taking fields and homes from the middle class or the poor, All, says Abraham Heschel, are responsible. And the prophets, few are guilty, but all are responsible. We're all complicit in economic injustices, even if we're not purposefully bringing them about. But it says they plot on their beds evil. At night, they fan into flame in their imagination. They think of ways, how can I add house to house, field to field, land to land, How can I increase my accumulation of things? How can I get more so that I can be more? They're plotting. They're daydreaming. Does this sound familiar at all to you? Do you ever ever sit in your car and, and daydream about sitting in a different car? Or sitting at your desk at work and daydreaming about being at a different work? Or sitting in your recliner at your house and seething in anger at everybody because you wish you were sitting in a different recliner in a different house? They covet fields and seize them. See, there's this combustible, toxic amalgam of imagination, covetousness, and power that always winds up working out very poorly. They've got the power to do something about it. They have resources. He's obviously talking about kings, talking about governors, talking about the the people who have some social clout, who have the ability to buy, who have the ability to displace, who have the ability to 
to rig the, the loan system and the ways that capital is dispersed. They plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, when justice should be carried out, they carry out their plotting, and they have the power to do it, and they covet fields, and they seize them. They defraud a man out of his home. You see what's happening? First of all, they've forgotten God altogether. So they think they have to take their own life into their own hands. And so they start thinking, my deprivations are economic. For me to be something, I've got to get more. So they start daydreaming about that, or actually night dreaming about that. Considering, thinking over, mulling their plans over. And then they wed that to this, this covetous desire that says, don't settle for cable TV. Don't settle. You deserve more. You need more. You should get more. There's a better life for you out there somewhere. There's a better wife out there for you somewhere. There's a better job out there for you somewhere. There's a better kitchen out there for you somewhere. There's a better meal for you to serve your children out there somewhere. I know it because I saw it on Pinterest. There are better shoes for you to wear out there. There's a better handbag for you to carry out there see what has become commonplace for us nearly all the industries exist to create and inflame your desire to buy things that they need to sell you that you don't necessarily need but they know how to inflame your wanter so you want and you want and you want and I don't mean to say you by you I mean I and you and we want and we want and if you happen to have the power to do something about it which the poor never do you see that's one of the things that distinguish the poor it's one of the reasons why god is always telling his people to make sure they don't forget the poor because they're the people who have no social clout they're the people who can't work harder and then all of a sudden have opportunities they're the people who no matter how hard they work probably nothing's going to change for them they're the people when they go to the doctor since they don't have health insurance they're not treated as well as you are When they go to the hospital, they don't get any special fussing. But what happens when you covet and you have the power to do something about your coveting and you think about it and you nurse this coveting is you set your desire on the the things of others. You set your desire in other times and in other places and other lives And you forget about the image of God. When you're thinking about another woman's husband, you're not thinking about that woman or your own husband. You're not thinking, when you think of another man's wife, you're not thinking about your own wife or that man. You forget the image of God. When you're thinking just about acquiring more things, you're not thinking about who you could be helping instead of acquiring more for yourself. It strikes me that one of God's sort of mental health, chronic acute dissatisfaction ameliorators. Hey, that's nice right there. A chronic, somebody write this down. Put this on Pinterest. Chronic acute satisfaction ameliorators. Now, you know what this means? It means when you walk around with chronic acute dissatisfaction, you're sort of, you just kind of, meh. You need something more. Everybody else is having a better life than you somewhere, and you need something more. One of the ways that you can ameliorate that or lessen its power over you, make it go away, 
is if you're involved in the lives of people who don't have more power and more money and more stuff than you. I think that's one of the reasons why God wants us involved in the lives of the poor. Why he always wants his people as a central feature of their lives to make sure that their presence is good news for everybody, even the disadvantaged, the oppressed, the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, because it is awfully hard to cry about the boat that you do not have when you have a friend who has $2.27 to his name. Now, you can do it because, you know, we, we're just not that compassionate. But it's a lot harder to do. We always, when we covet, we're always comparing up. But if you've got a lot of friends who are down, it's much harder to indulge that without any hindrance in your heart. It's kind of nice. It helps you. See, because if you're ever going to be a radically generous person, if you're ever going to be a giving person, you're going to have to become a profoundly contented person. You're going to have to figure out some way to put to death your covetousness. Which is idolatry, says Paul. Which is forbidden, says God. It's good to remember this. When you're urged, don't settle. Well, it depends on what they mean. If they mean, don't be content with what you've got. Always be hungry for more. God says, no. Be content with what you have. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Many people have put barbed wire in themselves, pierced themselves with many griefs because they ran after the acquisition of money. Luke Timothy Johnson, the Catholic commentator, says, when fear is monstrous, the acquisitive spirit, when fear is present, the acquisitive spirit grows monstrous. We're in a time right now where we're very fearful, and so you want to get more stuff. Whether that's for your pleasure or for your security, in either place, is it a replacement for God? Are you forgetting the image of God? Ever how the image appears to you? When you do this, when you start to realize my covetousness is a problem, it's eating me up inside. It's a, it's a spiritual sleep apnea that's choking off the life of God in me. I don't have to indulge this. I should kill it and practice contentment and ask God to help me find contentment. Then one of the things you can do is you can start plotting on your bed, not about how you're going to get more stuff, but about how you're going to help people with what you've got. Tim Keller, again, says this story in his book, Generous Justice. I just feel embarrassed. It's almost like saying, see us, Lewis. But he has this great story in Generous Justice where a man did just this. Instead of plotting on his bed evil, he was the owner of multiple car dealerships in an area, in a region. And he started realizing something, a feature of economic life that was happening. Most people regard car buying as their most pleasant experience, I think. Have I read that right? He says this. This is what they discovered at their dealership that was doing quite well. They discovered that white men haggled for prices. They would come into the store, and they knew good and well, I am not paying what you're asking for that. I'm going to work you down. I'm going to whittle you down, or I'm going to walk away. And they, they wind up getting the price reduced almost always. Women, however, and minorities, they discovered, never did this. Rarely did this. Rarely had the social clout. Rarely had grown up in a world where you did this. They didn't realize this was the way it happened. For whatever reason, they weren't doing it. So the car dealership 
What they were doing is they were artificially inflating prices because they knew that they were going to have to come down. So the white guys, the white men, were getting reduced price cars being subsidized by women and minorities who were paying full price with the artificial price. Do you understand economics enough to understand what I just said? It's kind of like what our government's doing with the lottery. We'll talk about that later. (laughs) It's a wicked thing. They shouldn't do it in good conscience. But this is what was happening. So you know what this Christian businessman thought? My relationship to Jesus Christ means that I've been dealt with graciously. It means I ought to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with my God. We are involved in an economic practice that is advantaging white men and is disadvantaging women and minorities. So we're going to make all pricing level. No haggling. This is the price. It's the price we can afford to sell it at. This is the price we want you to buy it at. There's no movement of the price. So everybody pays the same. Immediately, they lost 10% of sales. Long term, it wound up being fine. And an extra long term when he gets his rewards in heaven for practicing an economics of care and not merely of accumulation and acquisition, he will be very pleased with what Christ hands over to him. Our friends, the Mormons, I've stolen from a Mormon. You may have seen this essay I wrote once. See, Mormons are not allowed to drink caffeine. They're not allowed to have ugly children. Really, have you ever seen an ugly Mormon kid? You haven't. But you know what else they do? Ross Douthat wrote about this in the New York Times once. You know what they do? They urge their congregations, even small congregations, to go without two meals per month. They've thought about this. They said, for two times in 30 days... In addition to not drinking caffeine and not having ugly children, here's what I would like you to do. Take the burden of the disadvantaged onto yourselves and what you would have spent at Papa John's or Red Lobster or on organic grass-fed beef. Go without the meal twice in a month. What you save, give to the local fund for the poor at our church. They said even the smallest congregations are able to raise $50,000 a year in these small congregations just for the poor, and that in the state of Utah, where all the pretty Mormons live, and there are no Cokes, that they raise an amount with 3,600 churches. They raise $200 million a year from people foregoing two meals out. An amount that is fifth of what the whole state of Utah pays for their welfare system and almost equal to what they pay for health care for the poor in their town, in their state. Because they go without two meals, because everybody does it, because everybody recognizes that there's some kind of economic response to God. Now, we believe, I think, even more strongly in the grace of God than our beautiful Mormon friends. We'll let there be ugly people here. You can even have an ugly pastor in our church. And when you start to ponder, what about my life? Am I making room for the image of God in other ways that the image might appear that's not just my own tribe, that doesn't just look like me? What ways am I taking the burden of someone else's trouble onto me? It might be economic. It might be with time. 
I might be in a position to hire people and to take risks on people that other people can't. But at the very least, I can't be ruled by my own covetousness. I can't be ruled by my own covetousness and this, this power I have to do something about it and then wedding that to my imagination and thinking about how I can get more and more and more and more. Remember, God may just smother, may just shatter anything that's smothering the life of God out of you. He doesn't want you to have spiritual sleep apnea. He wants you to be fully awake and fully alive. He wants the life of God to team out of you. And whenever generosity is coming out of you in lip or life, his life is coming out of you. I'm going to close with this. Sometimes when I get a free moment, I pull up my phone or my computer and I look at images. Images of full-bodied, lovely-lined, elegant curvy German cars. Tricked you. My car has 255,000 miles on it. You'll hear me say every three minutes. And I have these moments where I think my soul would be restored if I had... Oh, I haven't had a five-speed manual transmission in a while. I need, one of the things I need in my life is to corner better. I need something that will go up the mountain faster. That's one of the problems in my life. I don't go fast enough. I need something that will go 120 miles an hour down 157. I want to be able to take a a curve going off the mountain at 60 miles an hour. Why shouldn't I? It restoreth my soul. It leads me beside green pastures and still waters. So I see cars sends me this clickbait all day long. I've set the parameters for what I need to indulge. Not new cars, just just different cars. German. And I find myself thinking, am I really looking for a car to shepherd me? Do I really not imagine that once I get a different car, as every time I've ever gotten a new thing that I had my heart set on getting, I'm going to ruin it because I'm going to be in it? These things always overpromise and underdeliver. Why have I not learned this by now? Micah ends this prophecy with a bit of hope of God saying after he has destroyed he said I'm going to preserve a remnant I will surely gather you O Jacob I will surely bring together the remnant bring them together like sheep in a pen like flock a flock in its pasture the place will throng with people and one of the ways that Jesus comes self-defining in the New Testament is what Kathleen just read, as a good shepherd. See, when you covet, when you use your power wrongly, when you're engaged in the kind of idolatry that needs to be broken to pieces, you're saying something else that God has made is meant to shepherd me. It's meant to nurture me. It's meant to restore my soul. It's meant to lead me to green pastures, to quiet me beside still waters. But Jesus, you have here saying, no, 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 I'm the good shepherd. 
Nothing you find on Pinterest will shepherd you. Nothing you find at IC Cars will shepherd you. Only someone who has been broken to pieces for you, who has laid down his life for the sheep and who now says, I have eternal life to give. And I grab my people and I say, I dare anybody to snatch them out of my hands. Do you believe you have a shepherd who's hanging on to you so tight, no matter how hard you're going to try to run away, you can always come back and be broken to pieces and know that the sacrifices pleasing to him are a broken heart and a contrite spirit. These he will not despise. Lord, you can say, I've looked, I've looked to acquisition to shepherd me. I've looked to a new job to shepherd me. I've looked to new relationships to shepherd me. I've always been despising the life that you've entrusted to me because I thought something else would shepherd me. And here stands Jesus saying, covet no more. Worship no other created thing. Plot this way on your beds. The Lord is your shepherd. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who will restore your soul. And who will hang on to you forever. And will make sure that all the wrongs get righted. And all your chronic acute dissatisfaction will be ameliorated. Even if you're presently broken to pieces. God's going to shatter everything that smothers the life of God in him. But anybody who comes to the good shepherd knows that he's been shattered for you. And you, from him, can find life. Not death but life and life to the full. I hope you'll come to the shepherd often. Amen.